This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are kids in foster care who are never adopted. They're not placed back with their families. And starting at age 17, when they age out, they're often alone in the world, according to our first guest. No home, no family, and little support. Denver Post investigative reporter Jennifer Brown writes about this in her ongoing series, Aged Out, Foster Care in Colorado. She finds these young people may end up homeless or incarcerated or at various points in their lives both. Welcome to the program, Jennifer. Thank you, Ryan. I understand the seed for this series was planted with a telephone call you received about a bed. Tell me about this. That's right. A a few years ago, when I was writing a different story that had to do with foster care, it was about children who are over-medicated while they're in the system. And one of the teenagers that I wrote about had just aged out, and he told us all about how many pills he had to take while in the system, antipsychotic drugs for his depression and behavior. And we wrote about that in our series. And about a week later, a woman called and she said, you know, Diego, from your story, he has to sleep on the floor. He's going to school. He has one or two jobs and he doesn't even have a bed. And is there any way that you could help me help him get a bed? And I thought, wow, you know, this kid, his mother had died. He had grown up in the system of foster care and he turned 18, aged out and was just barely scraping by. Barely scraping by, hoping for a bed. I, I'm I'm curious, as a reporter who I imagine tries not to get too involved in a story, what did you do about the request for a, a mattress? You're right. I mean, my instinct was, geez, I'll just buy this kid a bed. But as a reporter, I can't do that. So um, I linked this woman up with a charity, and I can't remember who it is right now because it was several years ago. But he did get two mattresses delivered to his apartment. This is a symbol, it is a sign of what foster kids deal with when they age out, the struggle that they are met with. I think uh, one young woman is quoted in your series is saying, it's not like we're just birds who can be pushed out of the uh, nest and be expected to fly. Right. I mean, one of the saddest statistics I heard while reporting this was that in Colorado and in all states really... Foster children who age out are more likely to go to jail than they are to go to college. Um, And it's pretty close, too, of even more likely to go to jail than graduate from high school, which is sad. I mean, that sets sets them up for a very difficult life and through no fault of their own, I would say. In particular, when it comes to graduating high school, Colorado lags behind many other states for the rate at which foster kids graduate. Is that correct? Well, Colorado is ahead in the sense that they have been tracking that for um, longer than most other states have. It became a federal law in the last couple of years for states to specifically look at foster kids and see how they were doing in terms of graduating and dropping out. Colorado decided to do that a few years ago. And there, frankly, isn't a lot to compare to in terms of other states. But what it does show is that it's very poor and getting worse. For example, um, in 2016, about 33 percent of foster kids graduated from high school in the four-year time period, the way they use that statistic. And then it dropped 10 percentage points 
in 2017. So 23% of foster youth in Colorado last year graduated from high school on time. 23%. Right. Less than a quarter. And that is obviously an indicator of what their future success may be. Yes, of course. Um, And if you think about what their education experience was like, uh, most of these kids move more than one time per school year. There, one study I was reading, the the most amount of times one foster youth had changed high school was 18 times. Oh my so how do you graduate if you've gone to that many high schools? In the first part of this series, you focus on a young woman named Sarah, whose life spiraled out of control after her mother committed suicide when Sarah was 12. Her father was mentally ill and couldn't take care of her, and so she soon found herself on a roller coaster that included six foster placements, running away, living on the streets in Denver. At one point, she was sleeping under a garbage bin behind a Taco Bell on the 16th Street Mall. Mm -hmm. How typical is Sarah's story? Sarah's story is more typical than you would like it to be. I mean, one of the hard parts for this series was finding youth who have aged out. You know, once they've aged out and left the system, where are they? And I met Sarah one day because I went to United Way's Bridging the Gap program, which is this program that helps um, aged out youth find a housing voucher and can actually teach them life skills after they've left the foster care system. And it's a program that started because so many of these young people who aged out of foster care were ending up at adult and youth homeless shelters. Um, I went there on the day, the one day a month where you can sign up for housing vouchers. um, And there was Sarah to get on the waiting list, which is a year long to get this federal housing voucher. And Sarah was one of those who right away said, yeah, I would like to tell the world what it was like to grow up in foster care and how tough it's been for me. And um, the photographer and I, Joe Amon and I, uh, on this series, spent a lot of time with her over the last year at her at two different places that she lived, and she was very open about her life. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the series right now in the Denver Post, Aged Out Foster Care in Colorado. Investigative reporter Jennifer Brown is my guest. And of course, the the foster system is made up of of many dedicated families who want to help young people. Uh, But what what did you find are the reasons that kids who age out, so again, they're, they're not adopted and they aren't returned to their biological families, what are some of the reasons they do so poorly? When they, when they age out? What, what needs to change to make that transition easier? It's hard to say what exactly needs to change. Whose responsibility is it to mm. take care of them? That's a politically charged question, I guess. Um, but in terms of whether these kids deserve better, that's an easy one. You know, they absolutely do. And one thing in Colorado is that we are very short on foster parents We are short on parents, especially who will take kids who are over than older than age 12 or teenagers in particular. And the kids who aren't getting foster families or getting adopted in Colorado are usually those who are past the age of 12. I think in all of Colorado in 2017, there were only six. Um, foster youth 15 and older who were adopted, six. And if you compare that to 
babies and toddlers, that was, you know, in the hundreds. And so that might be why uh, when they are just a bit older and yet not old enough to age out, that they are going from home to home to home to home. They're not adopted. And as you say, there's a shortage of foster parents as well, adding to the problem. Mm -hmm. And these are many of them challenging teenagers. If you think about what they have been through, most of them have been, you know, in a youth detention center or have run away or, you know, they've had very tough lives and they're not easy, some of them. Um, the, one of the women I wrote about in the series that was published last Sunday, um, she adopted a teenage boy and it turned out wonderfully. They're very happy together. She kind of rescued him from a very tough life. And then she turned around and tried to do it a second time. And that teenagers stole her car and totaled it and set fires in her house. And it was a disaster. And she couldn't financially or emotionally keep him. So that is why there's probably not enough um, foster parents for teenagers, but definitely we need more of them in Colorado. But it is difficult. You you write that there's a list of Colorado foster kids considered the toughest to adopt. Mm -hmm. and, and the reasons actually range from mental health concerns, even to race. Race plays into adoptability. Uh, and the idea behind the list is to identify the kids who need extra attention to find adoptive families. The youngest person on the list is seven years old. She's been in the system for more than five years. Tell me about uh, someone else that you uh, met on this this reporting journey that stands out in your mind. And maybe who's bucking the trend? I mean, are there reasons that mm -hmm. young people succeed? And what might we mm -hmm. learn from that? Well, coming out tomorrow online and then in next Sunday's paper, I write about a young woman named Emily who is a very intelligent young lady. She's very determined. She went into foster care at 14. She lived in several different places. And when she's at the end of her junior year of high school, she is having problems with the foster home that she's in. She gets removed from there, and she's missing from school for several days. And her physics teacher, who doesn't really know her except that she's a good physics student, wonders where she is. And he finds out from the school counselor that she's a foster kid. So he and his wife end up um, talking over the period of a couple of weeks and taking her in as a foster youth. Oh, and wow. they, they keep her through the end of her junior year and all through her senior year. They help her apply to colleges. They help her get scholarships. They teach her how to drive. And right now she is very successful at CU Boulder and she's planning to study abroad in Spain in the fall. And she really got the help she needed at the right time. Does that just mean that, that Colorado is in need of some heroes? I, I don't know. How would you put yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. And one, you mentioned the list of kids that are the hardest to find homes for. Mm -hmm. Once they develop this list using a computer program that they have, it's very cool, they give these children's case files, intensive recruiting, they call it. And one of the things they do is they talk to the youth about who in their life they know, not somebody who's already interested in foster care, but a teacher or a coach or a family friend or someone from church or anybody who could be a hero, as you say, and step up and and be a foster parent. I mean, this physics teacher wasn't a foster parent and hadn't really thought about that before, but 
he stepped up. But they're asking the kids to give that some thought. Mm-hmm. Ah. The older kids, you know, the teenagers, definitely. They ask them, who in your life do you feel like you trust and would want to be with? It's an unusual position to have to put a kid in in, in some ways, though. Mm-hmm. Imagine who might take you in. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's not even the weirdest thing that they go through. You know, when the boy I wrote about um, last Sunday recalled having his picture taken and giving in a little interview so that he could be on the website for the adoption exchange where it's first name only, but it's a picture of these kids who have not found homes, some for years and years, and gives a description of them. And he described it as feeling like he was up for auction. But on the other hand, there was no way he was going to say no because he really wanted someone to see him and adopt him. And someone did eventually. What do you hope changes because of this series? I would love to see a a spike in people signing up for being foster parents. And there are other programs, too, that um, I'll touch on before this series is over. But one is called the Choice Program, and it's more than big brothers, big sisters, but less than saying you're going to have somebody move in and adopt them. And they've tried this program out in California, and it, it ended up in adoptions. Um, and they're using it in Colorado now. You basically sign up to be a mentor for a foster teenager. And that might mean, you know, going out to eat or hanging out at your house sometimes. And it's just a way to help. And maybe dip your toe in the water and perhaps it, it's, it gradually becomes something else. Very briefly, Jennifer Brown, the Denver Post is a rough place, I imagine, to work these days. The newsroom has shrunk. It's been in the news itself the newspaper and the news. How is it to work in in that kind of environment and do this kind of important investigation? It's difficult, and it gets more difficult all the time. And as you've probably heard before, the, the newsroom used to have more than 300 journalists, and now we have less than 70 reporters and editors to cover the whole state of Colorado. And there was a time as a project's investigative reporter where I could spend months at a time on one project. That's not the case anymore. This series was reported in bits and pieces, you know, over probably a full year, you know, working on it for half a day or a day or two and then moving on to other things for a couple weeks and It's challenging, but the people that are left of the Denver Post, we're still doing great work. It's just harder to get it done in the environment we're in. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Jennifer Brown is an investigative reporter at the Denver Post. Her ongoing series, Aged Out, looks at the plight of older kids in Colorado's foster care system. It sounds like science fiction getting from Denver to Greeley in 11 minutes and Denver to Colorado Springs in just 12. CDOT says it's a possibility with Virgin Hyperloop One. The state's transportation department and Virgin just unveiled an initial concept of a Hyperloop station near Denver International Airport. Dan Katz, director of North American Projects with Virgin, spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. 
first off, what exactly is Hyperloop? I mean, you're proposing to transport people 60 or 100 miles in just a dozen minutes. So how could that be possible? So the key to Hyperloop is that it's travel inside a tube um, that is brought down to a very low pressure. So what that means is you don't have to deal with aerodynamic drag and wind resistance. So imagine you're driving in your car, right, which we do every day. You're pressing the accelerator. You take your foot off the accelerator. You start to slow down, and that's drag. On a Hyperloop, it's a low-pressure system, so you don't have that aerodynamic drag. So it's the equivalent of flying extremely high altitude. And so you have your foot on the accelerator. You take it off the accelerator. You're still going fast for a really long time. And that's the general principle. So you use less energy to go much further, much faster. And we're talking hundreds of miles per hour, right? Right, because when you don't have this force, this counterforce coming at you, um, you can go five, six hundred miles an hour. Colorado was one of ten places chosen by Virgin Hyperloop One as a possible site for this Hyperloop technology. Uh, it would possibly link Cheyenne to Pueblo and DIA to Vail. Uh, where does this effort stand right now? So that was a proposal brought to us by Colorado DOT and AACOM, and it was a very ambitious plan across Colorado. ACOM is a multinational construction firm helping uh, on this project feasibility study. Exactly. And it really had two spines to it. One was the front range and then one spine going out to the mountain region from DIA. We said, let's take this to the next level. So, you know, to the credit of Colorado DOT, which is a very forward-thinking government agency, uh, we started work on this feasibility study with AACOM, you know, doing the legwork on the engineering working with us. And we've decided, like all big projects, you have to have to kind of pick your first bite. So what is the first chunk we try to tackle, the phase one? And we have two contenders right now. So one is to go from DIA north to northern Colorado, go to Greeley, Fort Collins area. The other option is to go south, so it's Colorado Springs. And the question we want to take to the public a little bit is, do we go north, do we go south? We're, we're gaming that out right now in our study, and they're coming out as both good options for us. So we're going to try to get that better figured out and get more stakeholder input on that. What's appealing about Colorado for your company? What's great about Colorado is, you know, one thing, you don't, you don't hear this often, but the state government is very forward-leaning on transportation and technology. Uh, they, they don't want to find themselves in the middle of a problem and then try to figure out, well, how do we fix this now? They want to get out ahead of it. They've been very clear about that. They're also innovators when it comes to project finance and using public-private partnerships. So, you know, this will be an expensive project. I'm not going to, like, hide that fact. These, these things are expensive, but Colorado has developed these public-private partnerships to take a lot of the burden off the taxpayers and move it towards the private sector, yeah. you know, which we support. We realize our projects will have to be a partnership between public and, and private dollars to get it going. So, you know, we have a very forward-leaning government. We have... Uh, a lot of enthusiasm here in Colorado from from the business community and also from the public. And you mentioned the cost to construct this would be quite expensive uh, and also mentioned the use of public-private partnerships. Right now, there are quite a few in Colorado. U.S. 36 between Denver and Boulder. The toll lanes are managed by a public-private partnership. The uh, train between Denver and uh, Denver International Airport is also a public-private partnership. Would taxpayers be on the hook for any of the potential costs to construct the system? Well, I think, you know, for all these transportation projects, you know, there's a, you know, there's a price tag and there's a way you have to deal with it. But we know that Colorado has a track record of, of managing this process. 
and moving more of the project into the private sector. So, and we recognize that's a, a, an appropriate glide path for us. You know, we have investors in our company. We have resources to bring private sector involvement into the project. Um, but the, you know, I think what governments like Colorado see is even with an investment by the government, you're talking about a completely transformative technology. You can link the entire state within a matter of minutes if you can go from DIA out to Vail you know, in under a half hour, that's a big deal. And you turn what are now, you know, independent small metro areas into a mega region. That's an economic powerhouse. We've seen, you know, different technologies kind of dangled in front of Colorado residents. We've seen maglev technology between Denver and Vail. We've seen high-speed trains between Fort Collins and Pueblo. Is this a pipe dream? Are we just seeing something that could possibly, oh, it looks good, but never come to fruition? What's really unique about our company is that, you know, we've brought in people into this space that came from, not from transportation necessarily. A lot of it's from SpaceX, people working, you know, going to Mars and building rockets. And so it, what's interesting is that you don't have a lot of the incumbent technology providers in our company. And the positive side of that is that you're, we're rethinking everything. So we're bringing all the latest innovation into this. It's not kind of building off old systems and trying to like, you know, reconfigure it. It's thinking fresh and bringing the the latest, best technology to it. There have been several companies, including yours, testing this technology. What's to say yours is going to make it? Is there a concern you could be looking at a Betamax versus VHS scenario here where your technology just doesn't come out on top? That's a great question. And I think if you look at the track record, our company is by far the most advanced. Um, you know, if this is a race, we're several laps ahead of the others. Uh, you look at our we, – we built a system out in the desert in, in Nevada. We've shown that it works. We have, you know, far more investment in our company, uh, far greater operations than any of the others. Um, you know, one thing about this whole space is there's a kind of a generic Hyperloop name, but we've actually brought the system to life. How many years off is this technology, and and would it ever carry enough people to to really help alleviate traffic concerns across the Front Range and, and into the mountains? It's coming sooner than you think. We we if we can build something in Colorado, we want to break ground in the early 2020s, and we want to have something running, you know, by the early to mid 2020s. That's our goal. But would it do enough to actually remove cars off Colorado highways? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to have, especially in Colorado with its growth, a huge challenge on our roads. And the more people you can get out of cars, especially if they're taking a, a long trip, if they're going from Colorado Springs, driving driving to DIA or driving to Denver, I mean, that's a lot of cars on the road. You're also looking at a future where we're moving to an on-demand society. So even for, you know, if you get to DIA Hyperloop from Colorado Springs or, you know, from Greeley, getting from there to the city, you're talking about more efficient automated vehicles in the future, connected vehicles. So... You're talking about all around a more efficient system that's going to use our capacity much better. So it's not the Hyperloop's one part of the equation, and there's other parts of the equation as well, where you're going to see even with greater volumes of traffic, less congestion. That is Dan Katz of Virgin Hyperloop One. The company envisions a Hyperloop system between Cheyenne and Pueblo and between DIA and Vail. He spoke with Nathan Heffel. Religion is one of those topics you're told to avoid in mixed company. 
Not the case, though, at Chatfield High School in Littleton. Each semester, students there get to ask tough questions of clergy from the Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu faiths. CPR attended the most recent event to hear students' provocative questions, like this one from senior Jacob Burnett. This question is directed to the whole panel. So what do you think of the Divine Comedy in Dante's writings? Because I know it kind of touches on essentially every religion, whether it's good or in many cases very bad. What are your personal thoughts on it? He's referring, of course, to the iconic work of Italian literature, the narrative poem by Dante, a depiction of the afterlife as Dante travels through hell, purgatory, and heaven. Put another way, the student's wondering, what happens when you die? Well, Reverend Doug Hill chimed in first. He's with Abiding Hope Church in Littleton, which is Evangelical Lutheran. As far as Christianity is concerned, a lot of people's viewpoint about heaven and hell doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from Dante. And they don't know that. Dante's thoughts have become enculturated to where people think this is what the Bible says, this is what Christianity means. Dante, like the rest of us, was wrestling. was creating a narrative, a story, to try to come to grips with good and evil and how they're dealt with on a cosmic level. But it's fiction. I mean, it's not meant to be taken literally. Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadav had something to add. He's with Wisdom House Denver, which focuses on interfaith work. So what would be fascinating is to, is to look at it and, and go, okay, so it's wrestling with good and evil in the world. What brought these questions up in the first place? And how did these answers work for me or not? Do they match with what teachings of different faith traditions are and so on? But it's, you know, I think religion itself is an attempt to understand life and good and evil and our relationship to God and so on. And what are we doing here and what happens after we die? The Muslim voice on the panel, Monir Ludin, wants the kids to be open to many interpretations. Ludin is with the group Muslims Intent on Learning and Activism. From my perspective, we're all struggling to figure things out, just as the rabbi mentioned. In that process of struggling to figure out, we often have references. We have other sources to kind of look at. It becomes problematic when we follow those examples blindly. We have to always question. And sometimes people are very powerful in what they present and how they present it. And when they're able to convince, that is when they should watch themselves. Reverend Hill expanded on the idea that we all have good and evil within us. He's followed by Buddhist Lisa Pettit. Carl Jung, 20th century psychiatrist, who was deeply spiritual, Jung talked about the shadow side. And all of us have the shadow, right? And it's the part of us that we don't want to look at. It's not simply we want to hide it from others. We can't stand it, and we don't want to look at it. And because we don't look at it, it often comes out sideways. And when it comes out sideways, we're mortified, and we do whatever we can to cover that back up and and to hide from it ourselves. Because we hide from the shadow, it controls us. It has power over us. And so to become whole means that we have to look at our true self, which involves the shadow, and be okay, not judge it, not be ashamed by it, recognize it's an integral part of our humanity. And then once we can come to grips with the shadow, now we're free and we can talk openly about both the good and the evil. Dante was tortured 
tortured. And that took him into those really dark places where I don't think he was free. He was trying to project it, you know, into society, into creation, into everything. And it was messy, really, really messy. And a lot of people have just glommed onto that and they hold it as their understanding of heaven and hell. We've got to go deeper. The other thing I, that comes up for me with um, hearing what Doug's saying is that I was swearing at my kid yesterday because she didn't help me catch the dog. But she keeps me honest. I can't hide my shadow side from her very well because we live together, right? You know, it's the people you love that see you at, at all those levels. And the practice, our practice, Buddhist practice as I've learned it, is to sit with that. And I had been, so our dog, I'm sorry, he just runs off, and the more you go toward him, the more he goes away. So we've learned to just kind of sit. So this is part of my Buddhist practice, so it should be good, right? To sit and wait, and he kind of tends to circle back. And so I was sitting, and I was like, it is a beautiful day, and I'm trying to focus on the beautifulness of it, and of course he never really came back to me. And thus, even with the attempt of being mindful and appreciating the beauty of the day, I yell. God forgives you. I know. <laughs> well, and in Buddhism, we don't have a God. We I just know. have to forgive ourselves, right? So, and, that's, and that's probably the hardest part is forgiving ourselves. And so suffering helps us develop compassion. If we didn't suffer, we wouldn't know how you felt when your kid didn't help you with the dog. That is Lisa Pettit of the Compassionate Dharma Cloud Monastery in Morrison. She's one of five faith leaders who answered student questions at Chatfield High School in Littleton. That interfaith forum is part of the school's contemporary world issues class. Something I wish I would have had in school. We're hearing snippets throughout the week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the late 1920s, a heinous crime went unsolved for months until a fingerprint specialist was able to match a single print from memory. No fancy computers back then. It was the first time a fingerprint had been used to find a suspect. The story begins 90 years ago today when gunshots rang out at a bank in southeastern Colorado. Two men lay dead and bank robbers sped away then committing two more murders. The crime was so violent, it grabbed national attention and even inspired a song. His body will soon lie in slumber Out there near the clear western sky For robbery and cold-blooded murder Ralph Legal now goes forth to die Right. Colorado Life Editor Matt Masick recently wrote about this history. Matt, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So what happened during the robbery at the First National Bank of Lamar? Lamar is about two hours east of Pueblo. Well, it was 90 years ago today. Uh, it was just after lunch, and uh, the bank had just reopened. The two bankers there, their father and son, Newt Parrish and Jado Parrish, were chatting, smoking cigars. In through the double doors walk four strangers. One of them approaches the teller, 
produces a gun, says, stick him up. Uh, the teller is, is dumbfounded. How, how is this happening in Lamar? Uh, but the, uh, the robbers are quite insistent. And uh, then uh, they kind of go through their paces. They have this all very carefully plotted out. Mm. And all their plans aren't uh, going for much when the elder banker, Newt Parrish, produces a pistol and blasts one of the robbers right through the face. All heck breaks loose then. Eleven shots ring out in a span of seconds. When it's uh, all said and done, the banker and his son are dead on the floor. My goodness. What did the bandits get away with? They actually got quite a haul. It's about $238,000 worth of cash and bonds, liberty bonds, that kind of stuff, worth about $3.5 million today. They stuffed them into uh, pillowcases and grabbed a hostage, got into their Buick, and sped off. And the bandit who was shot in the face? He was bleeding all over the place, but he he made it out with the rest of the robbers. Uh, They took a hostage. They took a hostage. They uh, sped through the uh, back roads outside of Lamar. The county sheriff, Lloyd Alderman, arrives on the scene just after the robbers speed off, and he follows them for 17 miles until uh, the bandits get out some rifles, high-powered rifles, start shooting at his car, hits the engine. He can't follow them anymore. Two hostages, I should have said. There were two hostages. Yeah. They left. They let out one of the hostages, and the other one they kept with them as they sped off to parts unknown. Early on, were there just any thoughts among law enforcement about who might have done this? Oh, they didn't know uh, who it possibly could be. Uh, they put up roadblocks all over the place, uh, out to the state lines of Oklahoma and Kansas, but uh, they didn't turn up anybody. They didn't get a, a, a lead in the case until about a day later. Uh, and w- what happens is they, they know that one of the robbers is wounded and probably will need medical attention. Over in Kansas, a doctor goes missing after some strangers show up at his door saying, you got to come out to this farm. We got a kid who's been crushed by a tractor. When the doctor didn't come back, they figured that's probably the bandits kidnapped him. Hmm. And so their reign of terror continues. That's right. Uh, uh, Lloyd Alderman, the, the Colorado sheriff, gets actually in a National Guard plane flies around uh, uh, Kansas, and they find the doctor's car in a ravine. They land, and they find the doctor's dead body there. So the, the bandits have killed the doctor that they had treat their wounded comrade. And what, what happened to the remaining hostage? They find his body a few weeks later. He's also been shot to death. So that's four murders from this crime. Okay, so to the idea of fingerprints, that right. emerges as a powerful force in this. That's right. And I guess like fingerprints weren't used to find suspects in those days, right? That's right. So in the 1920s, they are taking fingerprints of of people, but you usually use it to sew up a crime. Like you have a suspect, you have some fingerprints, and you say, okay, do the suspect and the fingerprints match? Yes, then we have our guy. But it's not going to be for 70 more years until you can just plug a fingerprint into a computer and bing, that's your suspect. It just wasn't heard of. And so there had been a fingerprint found at one of the scenes, one of the many scenes of this crime. On the doctor's car, a single fingerprint. 
on and, on one of the windows. And a, a very shrewd fingerprint analyst enters the picture. Tell us how he cracks this case with what has to be like the best visual memory I, I can imagine. It's astounding. So they uh, send off the, the fingerprints from this crime to Washington, D.C., uh, the FBI precursor agency out there. And uh, the fingerprint anal- analyst there memorizes prints from particularly heinous crimes. Just, I don't know, as a hobby, I guess if you stare at enough fingerprints all day, they look different enough yeah. uh, that you can actually memorize the loops and the whirls to it. About a year later, this fingerprint uh, analyst is processing some fingerprints from California, some two-bit criminal who was picked up and released. And he says, this looks familiar. And so he he, he searches uh, a few different uh, uh, fingerprints that he, he had remembered until finally the seventh one, uh, he can't get out of his brain. The seventh one, he checks against the Lamar robbery, the Kansas murder. Yeah. Uh, and lo and behold, he has a name for the suspect. It's Jake Flegel, the, Flegel. Le- the leader of the Flegel gang. It's remarkable to think that he would have recognized that. Uh, the case had otherwise, I suppose, gone cold. It was very cold. They rounded up all the usual suspects. They arrested 50 different guys. They even got eyewitnesses to ID four suspects as being in the bank. But none of them matched the fingerprints. And so they didn't have a case. Okay. So the fingerprint does lead them to this Kansas family known for criminal activities. Brothers Jake and Ralph Flegel and two other men. Uh, three of the four culprits were tried and executed in Colorado. That's right. They they tracked them all uh, all down. Tracked down three of them at various places. They uh, uh, one of them, Ralph Flegel, actually confessed, and as part of the plea deal, uh, he says, "I we can't get the death penalty." Uh, Colorado uh, ignored that and uh, did the death penalty anyway. They were hanged at Canyon City. Jake Flegel, though was later shot and killed by police during an arrest. Right. They finally tracked him down. Lloyd Alderman, the uh, the sheriff from Colorado, traveled yeah. 150,000 miles over the course of a year and a half, plane, train, and automobile, finally tracked him down in Branson, Missouri, at a train station. He tried to get away. He pulled a gun. The uh, two dozen uh, police officers there also pulled their guns, and they, they shot him to death. Well, thank you for sharing this story with us. Well, it's it's really a remarkable thing that is overlooked uh, in when you learn about Colorado history. That such a significant thing happened right here. And I understand it still reverberates in Lamar. I think there's a, a member of the parish family that's still connected to the bank today. Incredibly, the, my goodness, the great grandson uh, of uh, Newt Parish, the the, the guy, uh, the the older banker, uh, later worked at that very bank in Lamar. My goodness. That's journalist Matt Masick. He wrote The Fingerprint That Doomed the Flegel Gang for Colorado Life magazine. And indeed, the bank the Flegel Gang robbed 90 years ago today still stands on Main Street in Lamar. It's now a consignment store, but the First National Bank of Lamar is across the street. And Lamar's Big Timbers Museum houses the Flegel Bank Robbery Exhibit. Now listen, my friends, and I'll tell you a story of bandits so bold way out in Lamar, Colorado. 
Whether of the town bank of its gold Two innocent bankers were murdered And another was carried from town In a cabin way up in the mountains The poor fella's body was why not add a little gold to your next hike or bike ride? There's a new guidebook with the best places to pan for gold in this state. Garrett Romaine is the author. Hi, Garrett. Hi. You describe yourself as an avid gold prospector and rockhound. Uh, aren't you just giving away your secret spots here? Yeah, there's a danger to that, but I, it's fun to share these spots and, and watch more people come out and, and get interested in these things. The Pikes Peak Gold Rush of 1859 drew flocks of prospectors to Colorado. And the lure of gold is still strong today because I think of the Discovery Channel show Gold Rush, that ragtag group of prospectors coming to Colorado to strike it rich. We made the journey all the way from Oregon through the mountains into Colorado. And you know what? We're in the last chance saloon on this one. We don't have any other choice. We've got to make it work. Okay, Garrett, give it to me straight. Am I, am I going to actually find gold if I follow the places in your book, or is all the good stuff really owned by mining companies? You'll find a few flakes here and there, some fine gold. Um, but it's true, most of the major deposits were discovered long ago. The old-time prospectors were very efficient, they're very motivated, and they took out most of the easy stuff, the bigger material. But just about anywhere in Colorado's mineral belt, you'll be able to pan a few colors if you're careful. It's a matter of science after a while. It's using a gold pan as a gravity trap, getting the light stuff out of the pan and looking at your concentrates. Oh, I love some of the language you're using there. You'll be able to pan a few colors. What does that mean? Well, it's true. There is a flash in the pan. When you um, get down to the bottom of the pan, it'll be full of black sands. There'll be decomposed granite, magnetite, even platinum. And um, if you just twist it, the pan, just kind of push it a little bit from the top, if there's any gold in there, it'll be revealed and it does flash. It, it'll get your attention. Wait, is that where we get the expression flash in the pan? That is totally where we get that expression. Oh, yes. I always thought it was a cooking thing. Okay. <laughs> Got it. That's just how badly I cook, I think. Um, so uh, what are the basic materials I'd need? So a pan of some sort, could that be like a pie pan? Do I have to get something fancy? What's the bare minimum? I have used a pie pan when I was younger. But what you want to do is go to a prospector supply store. They have a, a, usually a green or a blue pan. It's got super riffles in it. Um, some of some of the better pans have a coarse riffle and a finer riffle. You'll need a shovel, and then there's something called a snuffer bottle. It's a little plastic bottle with a long spout, and you squeeze the air out and suck up the water and the pan, the concentrates at the bottom of your pan. So, really, you just need those three things. I'm not sure where my nearest prospector supply store is. Maybe that might be Amazon. Uh, you could probably do it on Amazon easily. Yeah. But there's Colorado has quite a few uh, mining supply stores. I've listed a bunch in the book, and it's a quick Google search away. Am I mostly doing this along rivers and streams? Is that where this hap is happening? Yes, that's true. And um, I did include a few of the mines up in the high Rockies where you can bring a, a heavy hammer and, and break apart 
the, the boulders and the cobbles you find on the tailings pile. But for the most part, you are enjoying a, a little dip in a cold creek or river. I am thinking of some of the spots around Telluride, for instance, that are near old abandoned mines. Uh, you have to be careful, though, right? Like what's property you can go on? What's property you can't? That gets a bit dicey, maybe. It does get a bit dicey, and you you never want to venture inside an old mine. I, I've been tempted a few times, but it, it's just so much better out in the uh, sunshine. So you don't want to go in any structures. Climbing around them is can be dangerous if there's nails and you haven't had a tetanus shot. So you you want to use some caution there. Most mine owners have posted their their sites, no trespassing, and uh, you have to pay attention to those. You don't want to cross any fences, but. For the most part, a lot of these abandoned mines are up in the high Rockies. They're um, they're on Forest Service or BLM land, and uh, they've been abandoned long ago. So you're in luck with most of those. And indeed, Telluride is uh, something of a cluster for, for these gold panning spots. Telluride is amazing. In fact, all of Colorado has done a great job of preserving their mining heritage. There are... There's something about that nice mountain air. It preserves the timbers in the uh, abandoned towns and the the abandoned mines. So you've got that going for you. And there's historical preservation societies out of Aspen, out of Breckenridge, out of Telluride. And they're doing a great job of preserving some of these these, uh, structures. But then you've also – Colorado is blessed with just a multitude of mining tours, mine tours. You can go Mm. straight in. You can go straight down. Um, there, there's probably eight or nine of them that are very family friendly, and a lot of them have panning stations outside the the mine where you can get some uh, advice from some of the, the the experts. We're talking about this new guide, Gold Panning Colorado, a guide to the state's best sites for gold, and closer to Colorado's big population center. You list Cherry Creek and Confluence Park in Denver for urban gold panning. Really, really, Gary? It's true. It's true. You can um, the the Platte River and uh, Cherry Creek. They have colors in them. Um, there are some better places. Clear Creek has a about a six mile stretch above the Coors Brewery that um, is a little bit more free range gold than than in the city. But oh. um, the the nice thing is if if it's a nice day, then um, you can you can enjoy a little panning in the city. I, I prefer up in the mountains myself. If you're out of town anyway, then you might as well enjoy the mountains. But um, yeah, those sites are okay. You've actually found gold in Clear Creek. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can you can pan colors out of there. One of the sites in your new guidebook is actually near an old military plane crash site. A little extra something to see there. Yeah, out on the Taylor River. Um, it to me it kind of brought home that whole idea of just you know the whole nation was at war in World War II and it was a, a training operation. The plane ran into trouble and crashed into a mountainside and so there's a a nice little um, sign signage and some information uh, along the road and then there's a it's an easy spot to pan out of the Taylor River. And just place that in Colorado for us so we know where you're talking about. This is this is in the Elk Mountains, right? Let's see. What is the closest thing to it? It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. There's a Taylor Reservoir. Um, Yeah. Let's see. What else is there? Pritkin. um, St. Elmo, if you come up from the other side and go over the pass. 
St. Elmo, I think, is the, the lovely ghost town where you feed the squirrels, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is this really just an excuse to get people outside and like hiking? I mean, I, I think that part of the journey, part of the experience is just the getting there, you know? It is. It, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme at all. Um, if you're going to try to um, be serious about gold prospecting, you're going to need more materi- more tools than just a gold pan. You're going to need a sluice, a dredge, uh, a high banker. And those pretty soon you start needing permits. Um, you're going to be... You're going to be burning gasoline. So a gold pan is just an, an easy way. Put it under the seat and let pick up and go out, explore during these summer months, uh, enjoy the scenery, bring a camera. Um, if you come back with 100 pictures and a few flakes of gold, you'll, you'll be happy. Well, thank you for being with us. You, you've not struck it rich, I guess, at this point. No, no, okay. <laughs> no, it's not a get rich quick scheme, but it's fun. It's scientific. If you're real careful, you can enjoy it. Um, and there is something that gets your pulse quickening when you see a flash in the pan that you actually dug out of the creek under a rock and and pan it down. It it it's pretty exciting. You can see what motivated the old prospectors. That's Garrett Romaine. He's the author of Gold Panning Colorado: A Guide to the State's Best Sites for Gold. We'll post some of his favorite spots later today at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. And special thanks to Nathan Heffel. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.